Greetings and welcome to the Flyby, your bi-weekly dose of rapid-fire board game reviews. We have an excellent, excellent episode for you all. It's a Phil Walker-Harding double feature with Baron Park and Imhotep. I even promise I won't make any bear puns. Lindsay tells us all about the Bloody Inn. Mason changes pace with Colorado, and I discuss the allegedly best treehouse ever. But first, I need to make a quick announcement that the Flyby is no longer unaffiliated. We have joined forces with Ding and & Dent and Great Way Games to start the Inside Voices Network. A lot of intra-podcast chatting has led to the realization that we all want to help grow the board gaming community in similar ways. So with Raph's initiative, Inside Voices was born. If you want to find out more, visit InsideVoicesNetwork.com. And with that, on with the show. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and this week I'm going to discuss the hot new Phil Walker-Harding tile-laying game I alluded to back in episode 12, when I talked about his game Kakao. That's right, this week I'm talking about Baron Park, published in 2017 by Mayfair Games, with illustrations by Clemens Franz. Baron Park places two to four players in the role of zoo planners, specifically planning zoos themed around bears. Well, zoos roughly themed around bears, given that they've included the marsupial koalas, which has been a somewhat controversial decision. Players place Tetris-like tiles representing habitats and enclosures for the four types of bear, along with amenities like food stalls, lazy rivers, and of course the necessary porta-potties. As they complete sections of their park, they'll place valuable bear statues until one player has fully completed four sections of their zoo and everyone else gets one more turn to place tiles. Players then count up their points and declare a winner. One of the things I really like about the game is the way that players gain tiles, as it adds an extra layer of decision-making to the tile placement. You see, when you place a tile in your park, you potentially cover up symbols on your board. Symbols like a wheelbarrow, cement truck, excavator, or a construction crew. Each symbol corresponds to a type of tile that you then take from the general supply and add to your pool of available tiles for future placements. So placing a tile one way might fit well and net you an expansion board for your zoo, but rotating that tile slightly might be a less perfect fit, but let you grab the expansion board and available enclosure you've been eyeing. As the habitat tiles decrease in value as they're taken, and the enclosures are all unique shapes, grabbing a tile a few turns before you plan to place it can increase your final score. This adds a timing aspect and increases the level of player interaction. The bear statues also decrease in value and can only be gained by covering all spaces of a zoo section other than the designated statue foundation, which isn't allowed to be covered. The minute a player does so, they'll grab the next statue from the stack and add it to the foundation spot. Multiple times I've seen players groaning as the player in front of them grabs the statue just before they do. And while the statues only decrease by a single point each time, it still feels like a bit of a blow. The game also includes optional achievements, which it refers to as the expert variant. As far as I'm concerned, these are not optional and shouldn't be considered expert. To use them, players simply select three of the ten different achievements, each of which has multiple tiles of varying point values. At the end of your turn, if you've met the requirements for an achievement, you simply take the highest value tile remaining. I taught the game to my relatively non-gaming mother recently, and I left in the achievement tiles. And her comment afterwards was that she liked the fact they were there, and that they gave her guidance and direction during her first few turns, as she was figuring out how the game worked and what to do. The added complexity of the tiles is fairly minimal, but the additional point scoring opportunities and that little bit of guidance are pretty welcome. And while I don't always go for the achievements, I just can't see playing without them, and I see no reason to leave them out. I will note that Baron Park has been subject to various heated conversations on social media, and particularly on Board Game Geek. And it's not just about the koalas. 
BGG's forums are filled with threads detailing players being left unable to finish their bear park due to other players taking all the small amenity tiles that they need to fill gaps. I can see how this might happen in your first or second plays, but to do well, players need to fit the different tiles snugly together to maximize the number of points on a board rather than filling up with those little zero-point tiles, so it seems to be more an issue of unfamiliarity with the game than with a component count. It is frustrating that the rules don't talk about this edge case or give any guidance, but it has been stated by the designer online that if no one can play any more tiles, just end the game and count up your points. Another small rulebook issue is that in one place it references a section with an incorrect page number. It slowed me up in my first game when I couldn't find the section on what to do if you have no tiles to place at the start of your turn, but we did eventually find it just on a different page. Clearly this one was the result of last minute changes or edits, but it's a bit aggravating when it slows up your game. And then there's the insert. If you haven't heard about Baron Park's insert, in which case I congratulate you, the insert consists of three pieces of punchboard that slot together confusingly to separate the box into three triangle sections. It's not clear where to store things, it's not intuitive to put together, and I immediately just bagged everything and said screw it. Now, I do that with most of my games anyway, so I just found the insert kind of amusing, but it can be very irritating to some people, so be warned if that's going to upset you. But rulebook issues and weird insert aside, Baron Park is an amazing little game, and it's earned a firm place in my collection. It plays in 30 to 45 minutes after a really quick teach. It's easy to grasp in a first play, but you're going to keep improving with further plays. And it's smooth playing enough to allow for casually chatting while playing. You might be surprised when your turn rolls around sooner than expected, but the quick pace of the game keeps everyone engaged. It's knocked a good few games off my list of games to purchase, as I just can't see choosing Cottage Garden over Baron Park. So basically, Phil Walker Harding has done it again. He's given us a great-looking game full of satisfyingly interesting decisions that plays in less than an hour. Check it out if you haven't already, just don't waste too much time on the insert as wrapping your head around that one's a puzzle harder than any escape room. And until next time, you can find me on sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter as Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Look, I know this is a game review podcast, but I want to talk a bit about my mindset when I go to conventions. I'm terrified. If I don't have my husband, my partner in crime with me, I'd probably chicken out. Please don't tell anyone my deep, dark secret. Where does the fear come from? That I'm going to be the worst gamer at the table, or that I'll have chosen a game that everyone else hates, that I'll take the longest to learn a game, that I'll suffer from AP on every turn, that I just won't do it right. But last year at BGGCon, my husband and I decided, you know what? We're going to play games with as many different people as possible. And new games. New people, new games. This would either break me out of my shell or foster a self-fulfilling prophecy. The first game we pulled from the library shelf was Imhotep, designed by Phil Walker-Harding and published by Cosmos. We went into the main hall and threw up a Players Wanted flag and quickly had a person from Longview, Texas come and join us. It was his very first BGG Con, and he was there solo. So, okay, new game, new person. Had we chosen the right game? Would I sit there with the rules and go, 
uh, no clue, and slowly walk away with some melancholy Vince Guaraldi song playing in the background. But Imhotep, talk about a lucky break. In this game, you're a builder constructing the great monuments of ancient Egypt. It's part area control, part sect collection, a dash of worker placement, and a whole lot of engagement in one's puzzle-loving brain. Imhotep features a modular setup and a lot of randomization leading to a good deal of replayability as you set up the marketplace and the layout of the monuments you and your fellow players are working to build. On each player's turn, you can choose one of a few actions. You can draft more building materials from the quarry if you have the room to store it. You can deliver building materials to one of the waiting ships. Or you can send a ship full of materials to one of the monuments or to the marketplace. And this is what really gets my if-then logic problem-loving self in a very happy place. Unlike many area control games I play, not only do I feel like I'm making decisions for myself to set up a path to victory, but the other players can directly impact and totally change my strategy, and I theirs. I set my building materials in such a way that I know will net me max points if I send it to, say, the Temple Monument. But if a player chooses to use their action to sail that ship someplace different, well, there goes my plan. I have to be both offensive and defensive, often in the same turn. This all sounds like it could have been a recipe for AP disaster, but with the action choices so simple and the game being played over only six rounds, it plays pretty quickly. That first time three-player playthrough at BGGCon took about an hour, and that included setup and learning the game for the first time. My husband and I often play this two-player and finish in about 30 minutes, and we never feel like we're missing out with playing it just us two, and the strategy is just as strong and often just as cutthroat. Those moments when your turn alters someone else's plan never feel so detrimental that players feel like they're constantly climbing an uphill battle when someone's in the lead. This isn't a race. It isn't always about being first or having the most. It's about building smart, and tides can turn on a dime. It's just fun. And it's one of those games I never worry about being overwhelming with new gamers. It's pretty obvious why this was a Spiel des Jahres nominee in 2016. Imhotep retails for about $30, which feels like a bargain for a game that I keep coming back to over and over and have yet to feel it get stale. Imhotep plays up to four players, and with a lot of game in under an hour, this is a must-have. For 5 by Games, I'm Stephanie Stonerob, and until next time, stay playful. Hello, it's Lindsay here. In this episode, I'm talking about The Bloody Inn, a 2-5 player hand management game. It's designed by Nicholas Robert, with artwork by Louis Francisco and Weberson Santiago. It was originally published by Pearl Games and plays in around 30 to 60 minutes. Bloody Inn was released in 2015, and I first found out about it through Rado Runs Through. I love the theme and I enjoy card games that so look like a surefire winner to me. I believe that it received quite a bit of hype as it was sold out for some time 
and was selling for silly prices in corners of the internet. When it got another print run, I snapped it up and initially I wasn't blown away. I still can't place why as it wasn't radically different from what I was expecting, but something just took a little while to click for me. But I'm always quite determined to persist with games and I'm glad I have repeated plays because eventually it did click into place and then I found it to be quite delightful. Well, as delightful as a game about sense this murder can be. The theme is macabre for sure, but I've never felt like it was supposed to take itself too seriously. It's supposed to be a little odd and I think the abstract artwork in the game really reflects that. But it's odd yet digestible and easy as hell to learn and play, just not so easy to win. In the Bloody Inn you're playing as the owners of an inn, which is the central board, who are killing and robbing their guests who come in the form of decks of cuts. Each round more guests come to the hotel and are placed in rooms and each player has two actions. You can use these to pick up guests or peasants, hire them as accomplices, use them as annexes or kill them outright. Some cards have a cost and you can use the cards in your hand to hire, kill or bury. When used as annexes they come with a special ability or bonus. You must bury any corpses under an annex and any time the law cards show up at your hotel you must ensure you have no unburied corpses as there'll be a costly penalty, namely losing money and points. When corpses are buried you gain the amount of francs printed on the card and take the corresponding frank tokens. You can also take turns to launder your francs which means exchanging points on the score tracker for the frank tokens and the winner is to play with the most money. One of the things I enjoy about the game is how rapid the rounds are especially in a two player game and how your decisions need to be made quickly which is evocative of how you go about covering up an impromptu murder in real life. Not that I've thought about it. The fact that you only have two actions amps up the difficulty factor and I think this is possibly why I struggled at first because I wasn't getting beyond that first layer. I was more concerned about disposing the police and burying the bodies with a sole focus on laundering money as soon as possible but it's really about who you are hiring and their abilities. Now I've played a lot over the past couple of years I can see why it's so important. If you make these choices carefully you save so much faff. The accomplices that give you abilities such as paying one less to bury or build or draw an extra card from the peasant deck is just so helpful in getting more out of your two actions rather than repeatedly spending and doing the same thing and getting frustrated the little progress is made. Of course the gaining and laundering of money is the crux of the game and again it's the abilities of the characters that can assist you and give you marvellous end of game bonuses. I love the prints and the green cards because they maximise your income. They're like the rich folk. The problem though, not in a negative sense, is that you never know who's going to be entering the inn and when the police will arrive so you can't really have a long-term strategy which makes for those now biting moments. It's also a good idea to be cautious as you don't know who's going to show up but not so cautious that you're not gaining anything and I think the bloody inn is rather thematic in that respect. I was told through a friend on Instagram that the theme is based on a true story which I didn't know about and usually I'm pretty clued up on the creepy weird and horrible. Le Auberge Rouge or the Red Inn Affair as it's known, sorry I'm not going to attempt a French accent here. It was an incident in the 18 hundreds where the proprietors of the Red Inn in Ardèche, France, killed and ate their guests. There are several books and a couple of films based on the story for anyone who's interested and the inn is actually a tourist attraction today so I thought it was pretty fascinating. The solo option is also there and I played it several times in preparation for a playthrough video. It wasn't bad but it wasn't the best solo game either. For me personally I think it's much more fun to play with others with this one. It lacks something other than the obvious as a solo game but because you're not playing an AI and it's simply repeated turns until you win or in this case just not lose 
It feels a tad on the lonely, repetitive side with not much to aim toward. The regular game has moderate level of interaction, I find, because though for the most part you're doing your own thing, you can use each other's annexes and gain from other players. Again, simple yet thematic and gives you that little bit of interaction which is much needed sometimes. Lastly, I enjoy the balance of scoring points and laundering money, as you have to choose your moments carefully and maximise your earnings before the game comes to a close. So I think this is why I've come to appreciate the bloody inn more over time. As the game unravels, you discover there's much more to it. And yet, despite those lovely layers, it's actually straightforward to pick up and play. I was very excited to hear of an expansion which is due to release in Essen this year, I believe. The title is Carnival, and there's not much more on it at all, but it looks to be sideshow-type characters that are coming along to change things up in some way we're yet to discover. I'll finish by saying, if you think the theme is too dark, please don't worry. It's unsettling and unpleasant, and the real-life story is certainly grim, but it's really not heavy on that side of things. There's no detail, no splatter, it's more suggestive than it is horrific. So unless you're a horror fan and you want to elaborate on what your characters are up to, you can really leave that side of things at the door and just get on with a very decent card game. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube channel, Shiny Have Meeples, or visit my blog, www.shinyhavemeeplesblog.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter, capital S, capital H, Meeples. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Coloretto. German designer Michael Schock has had a lot of games published in the last 25 years. You may have played some of them. Hansa, China, Web of Power, Zuloretto, Valdora, Mondo, Richelieu, Coney Island, California. None of these are what I call the new hotness, uh, nor are they perennial favorites, really, or million sellers. But you know what? Michael Schott is a great game designer. My favorite of his games is Coloretto, which is a perennial and probably should be a million seller. Coloretto is a set collection card game, and yes, of course it's a set collection card game. Do I ever talk about anything else? I'm insufferable, I know. Ostensibly, it's about collecting chameleons of different colors, but of course the theme is totally irrelevant here. You can only do one of two things on your turn. Draw a card from the deck and place it in one of the face-up rows, or take one of the face-up rows and place the cards in front of you. Each row can only have three cards in it. Uh, Once you take a row, you're out for the round. But the twist here is that you can only score three color sets of the seven available in the deck. Beyond the three color sets you choose to score positively, all of your other cards count against you. And that's the game. So why is it fun? Because of the emergence. I've talked about emergence before, but Colorado is one of my favorite examples of a game that is just more than it seems. If you don't know, emergence is sort of related to unintended consequences, but in good game design, it often presents as strategies in gameplay that are really outside anything explicitly outlined by the rules. For example, if a game's rules say that on your turn, you and your opponent each roll a die for combat, whoever has the highest roll wins. That conflict is not emergent, that's explicit. But if the conflict is a product of deliberate decisions a player makes as a result of their opponent's decisions, that's emergent gameplay. There's nothing in the rules of Colorado that says you should lay off colors your opponent's trying to collect into rows with things that you know will actively harm them, but that's how you win at Colorado, and that's emergence. There's a strong push-your-luck element in Colorado as well. Will someone else take the cards you want? How long should you wait to pick them up? Even if everyone else has finished the round, you're often left with painful decisions. Do you take only the two cards in the last available row, or do you draw a third, which you'll have to take along with them regardless of whether or not you want it or if it's harmful to you? Taking strategic losses in Colorado is emergent in and of itself. Playing solely from the perspective of the rules, you wouldn't ever choose to take cards that might actively hurt your score, but a little bit of light min-maxing in this game is often very much to your advantage. 
Coloretto was simple enough that anyone over six years old could easily learn and understand the rules. But understanding the emergence strategy necessary to win Coloretto is significantly harder. Like many of my favorite games, winning Coloretto is mostly about paying attention to your opponent's choices, not just focusing on maximizing your own points. Besides the color cards, there are also some plus two cards that give you straight points, and some wild cards you can save until the end and then add to sets of your choice. You can only score a maximum of six cards in a set, so ideally you'd have six of three different colors and none of anything else. But that's not going to happen. You're going to have to take some cards you don't want, but you should always try to minimize any sets beyond three colors. Better to have just one of each extra color and lose four points than end up with a bunch of cards of just one fourth color and get slammed with a big chunk of negatives. The sets in Colorado are progressive, so the more cards of one color you collect, the more points each of those cards is worth, positive or negative. If you've not ever played a Michael Schott game, I'd call the style a cross between Dr. Kinesia and Phil Walker Harding. Set collection games with slightly odd or counterintuitive scoring systems are a hallmark of all of his work. Michael Schock is really into, a little isn't enough, some is just right, but don't get too much because it's actively harmful. Coloretto comes in a very small box, and the card quality is great. It's an abacus spiel game, so of course it is. It can usually be had for under $15, but there's a really cool 10th anniversary edition from 2013 that uses the beautiful art from the Russian edition. This anniversary edition is a little bit difficult to come by and isn't in any way necessary to own and enjoy Coloretto, but if you like the game, I think it's well worth the effort and expense. One of my favorite things about Coloretto is how simple it is to teach to new players. It's often my go-to game to throw in my bag or back pocket when going somewhere that I might have the opportunity to get a quick game in. I've played Coloretto with hardcore 18xxers and people who've never played anything beyond Monopoly, and both groups loved it. Colorado is also available to play for free on Board Game Arena, so you can try before you buy if you're a cheapskate like me. When Meg and I play online games and Skype with friends across the country, Colorado often gets played. Everyone knows it well enough that you can chat while you're playing, and it's quick enough to play multiple times without getting bored. So who should buy Colorado? People who love set collection card games. People who like small box games. People who like games that scale well across multiple player counts. And people who like casual, interactive games that are enjoyable to players of all skill levels. I give Colorado 7 out of 7 rainbow chameleons laid off on a row otherwise full of your opponent's colors. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. Best Treehouse Ever by Scott Alms and published by Green Couch Games probably didn't mean their title as a challenge, but given how much my family enjoys Backyard Builder's Treehouse, I was hoping Best Treehouse Ever really brought its A-game. It was really kind of a fluke that I ended up with Best Treehouse Ever. I'd heard Green Catch Games was coming to SaltCon, and I like to try and buy games at the con to show appreciation of publishers I like. My kids, though, weren't convinced, so it sat unplayed, until just recently my kids suggested we give it a try. In Best Treehouse Ever, you are, wait for it, building a treehouse, through pretty basic card drafting. Each round, each player starts with a hand of six cards. They choose the card they want to play, and then pass the rest of the player next to them. The more interesting mechanisms in this one are each room must be supported by two rooms below it, unless you place it at the edge. You must keep your treehouse balanced, and once you place a color, all subsequent cards of that color must touch. You are kind of building an upside down pyramid, staggering cards as you go. So a row of two cards has a row of three cards above it, which has a row of four cards above it. As you place cards, you adjust your balance marker left, center, or right, depending upon where you placed your card. It's really interesting and sometimes means you can't place that perfect card because you need to bring your tree back to center before you place another card on that side. 
that you must also place all cards of matching colors adjacent to existing cards of that color can also really mess up what cards you can place. There are five different room colors, and it's best to keep all color options open if possible. But most of the time you really can't help but cut off a couple of them, and just hope you still have options as the game starts to come to a close. Which, if you have a cut through a group, is probably when the hate drafting starts. Otherwise, if you can't place any card in your hand due to balance or color issues, you'll have to just choose one and discard it. It's clever and requires thinking without being super complex. At the end of each of the three rounds, you score points based on the rooms in your treehouse. It's a simple one point per room. But before you score, each player has a chance to put a two or zero point modifier on each color. So, my four yellow rooms can be worth a regular four points. 8 points if I get the 2 point modifier, or 0 points if someone is feeling extra mean. When playing with the kids, I reserve the 0 point card as parent prerogative and put it where it does the least harm so there aren't hurt feelings. At the end of the game, there are also majority points for each room color that aren't affected by modifier cards. So, even if someone zeroes out my 6 purple rooms, I still get 6 points for them at the end of the game. The modifier cards really set up interesting strategy as you have to decide whether or not you're going to go deep with one color that could possibly be zeroed out against you, or spread out your color usage in more of a balanced approach. There are also more advanced scoring goal cards which give you two patterns you're trying to make in your treehouse. I really like those in two player games, but in our three player games I found luck hit a little too hard in trying to obtain those. I didn't get a chance to play four player, but I suspect it's even harder. They're still worth including as it's a light, fun, random short game, but just to warn you. So, that's the gist of the game, and for a light, fun drafting game, we ended up liking it. Even my six-year-old enjoyed and won both of his games with practically no guidance from me. The art in the game by Adam McIver is fun, whimsical, and pretty inclusive. The rooms all fit themes based on the color. Blue seems to be water, purple is art, orange is sports, brown is food, Green is adventure, maybe, or play, but yellow is the best, with a planetarium, map room, game room, and model train room, among others. I also want to note that each room type has a symbol associated with it, which helps with colorblind accessibility. There's also a Kickstarter promo pack that Jason kindly threw in with the game. The first part is a birdhouse card that you can use for minus one point at the end of the game, and can help you place other cards. It doesn't count as a color, but does shift your balance. I had a game or two where it may have been useful, but I don't see that as necessary. Also in the pack are some new bonus cards where the amount of points you get varies depending on the level that you complete the pattern on. I found that to be more interesting. I think we'd be okay without it, but it certainly added more interest in completing those goals. The one part that I do think makes it worth seeking out is the additional point modifiers. These are for changing what rooms are worth before each scoring round. The promo adds some new interesting options and changes their use so that you now discard the modifiers used each round so they can't be used again in that game. I found this to be pretty interesting. It also helps with two-player games because according to the base rules, in a two-player game you can only use the zeroing out cards, and wow, that, that's just mean. Capital M, mean. I'm sorry, but that was instantly household here to be the cards that mean the rooms are worth two points instead. So. In the end, was this the best treehouse game ever? Well, it's pretty up there. My kids say they like it best, but that's hardly fair having just finished some games of it. I certainly see a place for both in my collection. 
I'm even thinking this could sub in for our family favorite Sushi Go from time to time. Until next time, if you wish to discuss Treehouse games further or explain to me why anyone would want to spend the night in a Treehouse hotel, you can reach me on Twitter at Mike Grizzly. Thanks for listening to The Five By. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at Five By Games or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games. Join our BGG guild number 2810. You can listen to the five by on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and don't forget your five star reviews. Or you can follow all of our links at fivebygames.com. The Five By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.